Dwayne Chambliss. I'm a professor of English and a core faculty in the Consortium for Critical Diversity and Digital Wage Research, or CEDAR, at Michigan State University. I'm also the Val Berriman Curator of History at the MSU Museum, and I will be your host for this episode of Every Tongue's Got to Confess. Every Tongue Got to Confess is a podcast designed to document the dynamic discussion about education, enterprise, and institutions, and activism intrinsic to the ideology that found Edenville and shaped its most famous daughter. The purpose of this podcast series is to explore issues facing communities of color globally by listening to the voices of attendees at the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. Founded by the Associated Preserve Edenville, the Zora Festival has long embraced an educational aim inspired by Zora Neale Hurston's celebration of black culture and life. This production is a joint project between the Associated Preserve Edenville community, Michigan State University, and the University of Central Florida. During the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities, Interviewer Grace Chung talked with Peterson Jelly Clark in Edenville, Florida about Afrofuturism. Clark is a writer of speculative fiction, including The Black God's Drums and The Haunting of Tram Car 015. Have a listen to their conversation. Could you please introduce yourself? My name is Fenderson Jelly Clark, uh, also write under the name P. Jelly Clark. Uh, I am a writer of speculative fiction. Can you tell us a little bit more about growing up a little bit? Oh, yeah, sure. So I was born in uh, New York, Queens, New York, to be exact, Queens. Uh, but at a young age, my parents, who were uh, immigrants from the West Indies, sent me back to live with my grandparents. Uh, so I spent the first uh, seven or so years of my life uh, after, I think, after the age of one, I spent the next seven years in uh, the West Indies on the island of Trinidad and Tobago in a place called Chagones, Trinidad, in fact, uh, where I spent my formative years. Um, and uh, after that, I moved back to the United States, uh, where I lived in New York City and uh, stayed there for a short while. And then we moved uh, to Texas. And so I actually, uh, most of my life, uh, where I went to college, where I went to uh, most of middle school and high school was in Texas, and I uh, spent a lot of that time in Houston, Texas. So I've got a, you know, a bit of a range. I'm now located in New England, but you know, I've lived a few places, yeah. Uh, and can you tell me how you started your work in Afrofuturism? Well, when I started, I didn't know what Afrofuturism was. Uh, I think I've always had an interest in various forms of speculative fiction. Even growing up in uh, Trinidad when I was smaller, uh, I had folk tales from my grandmother. I had folk tales from the community. I grew up in a community that was uh, that was a mix of uh, persons of African descent, uh, Afro-Creolized people, um, Afro-Trinidadians, that is, and well as uh, people from the Indian subcontinent, um, who also were a large bulk of the population, and so. I grew up with a mix of Afro-Creole type folk tales, um, 
of, uh, of, of Hindu stories and images and television shows. And so um, if you, you take a mix of this as well as um, Muslim festivals, so all of this was just part of my young upbringing. I think from that very early age, uh, I, ha I knew I had this strong interest in the fantastic, right? Before it's even called futurism, I had this strong interest in things that were fantastic and otherworldly. Uh, when I came to the United States, this was just nurtured more uh, by uh, an onslaught of media from television to uh, movies to books. Uh, both my parents, uh, my mother was a, uh, a big Twilight Zone fan. Uh, she also liked the original Star Trek. Um, she took my sister and I to the libraries where we'd spend hours just devouring books and so all of that really helped on my father's side um he, he grew up on a lot of older movies with people like peter cushing and these kind of older horror movies he, he was a big fan of godzilla movies he loved star wars he would take us to see that kind of thing and so uh you know as well as it being part of the larger culture uh part of my family upbringing and then coming to the united states and just being exposed to it and in various ways, even as kids with other with other kids, I grew up in, you know, mostly uh, black neighborhoods that were a mix of black and brown neighborhoods that are a mix of people from various parts of the diaspora. And all of us as kids, we we loved various things, whether it was Star Wars or you know uh, some television show or it was comic books. This was just what we were talking about in between all the other things kids talk about. So it was just always there. Yeah. So how would you define Afrofuturism? Hmm. That's interesting because there's a way that Afrofuturism is now often seen as this umbrella term for various aspects of black speculative fiction, and I don't know that I agree. Like, I, I've written stories before that I understand how people interpret them as Afrofuturism, but I've also had people ask me, like, well, that story you wrote was Afrofuturism. I'm like, well, that was a complete fantasy story that's set in a pre-industrial world. There's, there's absolutely nothing futuristic about it. It's, it's more so a form of speculative fiction and fantasy that has uh, black characters and African antecedents. And so, to me, Afrofuturism, I've always looked at as, for one, having something to do with some form of the future, right? Imagining possibilities of how black people will exist uh, in the future or can exist in the future or even futurist ideas uh, within our present state and imagining what those would be like, whether it is utopian, dystopian, or something in between. Now, I think where my writing, some of my writing fits in is that uh, I think there's a term that I really like using called uh, retro, uh, retro-futurism or retro-afrofuturism. And I thought I coined that term, but I did not. It turned out that uh, perhaps like minds think alike, and the person who I realized in writings who was using that term is um, Nizzy Shaw, great Nizzy Shaw, uh, writer of Everfair. Um, he uses this term of a retro after futurism. In this case, and I think this is again where my work fits in often, is uh, persons who look to the past but imbue the past and imbue people of African descent, black people in the past, with futuristic elements. And so we're thinking, for instance, of including black people in things like steampunk, 
because steampunk, of course, though it's the past, it's a past that never was. And often the technologies that exist in that past, while they are past, they also are much more futuristic than we have, right? You can have sentient machines in, in steampunk and different things that for forms of, um, of human cybernetics that we don't have or airships that function in ways that, that our world hasn't figured out yet, even though it's this, it's this, uh, it's this retro uh, type of technology, and so a good word for that is that I've seen used. Nizzy Shaw is retrofuturistic. In a sense, I think some of my works and her works deal with this retro Afrofuturism. So it's a more complex look at future Afrofuturism, but it shows me how the genre can have uh, different avenues and different ways to be thought of. Yeah. Can you share a little bit about how you started writing? Mm. So I think. Um, I, I I mean I was always I guess because one thing that happens is because I was. I said my, my mom, who would take us to the libraries and we would just sit and devour things, is that I think if, after you read a whole lot, I don't know if this was for everybody, but for me, I, I read so much, I was like, I want to take my hand at that. And so I think from the time I was a kid, I would just write stories. So I'd make up my little comic books. And mostly they were for me, they were for my sister. We would share these things. And then I think by middle and high school, it was for friends. But I, I admittedly did not think about writing seriously. I didn't think about writing seriously even as I was going through college, right? I was not a writing major. I did not take creative writing classes. And I think part of that has to do with uh, the time I was growing up, did not have social media and those things. And I just honestly did not see black writers, right? I didn't, at least pardon me, I did not see black writers speculative fiction. And so it wasn't that I, it wasn't that I then assumed, oh, black people can't write that. It was just that it was not even a part of my mind to say that, uh, oh, I could grow up and be a writer of speculative fiction. It just wasn't there. I don't think it was really until my later years of college that I started thinking like, oh, wow, maybe I could write speculative fiction. Maybe that's something I can do. And still, it was just something I might do for myself or on the side. And I think uh, sometime then, like literally in my very late collegiate years, I started taking my hand and thinking how to write seriously about speculative fiction. It took many years before I actually entered the market or those kinds of things. So, it, it, I mean, when I look back now on when I would write, I would say it started at an early age, but when I would write seriously, uh, that came much later in life, yeah. What were your, like, biggest, I guess, influences? Mm. So growing up, again, because unfortunately, the greats like Octavia Butler and others, you know, uh, Delaney and others were not even put in front of me. I didn't know they existed. I did not know those writers existed well until I was almost finishing college and somebody's bought me. So thankful now for social media, people can learn more about these black writers. But at the time, I mean, the internet, I think I was finishing college, it was, you know, becoming big. And so that's how I heard about them actually interacting with people in early forms of internet social media on, on things called listservs, which I don't think exist anymore. Um, but when I was growing up, it was, I mean, my influences were often the things I was watching, the more popular uh, forms of speculative fiction, um, and then things I was reading, people like um, Madeline Langle's uh, works. Um, Wrinkle in Time. Wrinkle in Time, thank you. <laughs> yes, of course, Wrinkle in Time, I think it was like this profound influence. I was blown away by those books. I read them at a young age. I mean, you know, I'd read other writers. I read Token. I think I was 
probably really influenced by Tolkien. For good or bad, I was influenced by Tolkien. I, I was a big fantasy person, so I read all these, people probably forget, all these Forgotten Realms books that were based on D&D, and, you know, I read, like, the Margaret Reese books of Dragonlance, and so I, I was really big into fantasy, so I read those. I read Frank Herbert's Dune, and so there were all these influences, and what's interesting is none of those things sparked me to write, right? I, I think that when I first started writing, uh, interestingly enough, like I said, it was later in collegiate years, and it was actually like a mix of politics and uh, trying to mix politics with speculative fiction. So my early speculative fiction always has to do with something. It was a little didactic, and it always had to do with something social. And I think the influence on that was probably somebody like Ray Bradbury, you know, who I grew up uh, on books like The Illustrated Man, for instance, and The Martian Chronicles, and then, you know, and then my mother's love for Twilight Zones, and I was like, how do I translate that to talk about the black experience? And little did I know, even when I started that, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm doing this, and who's done this before? And boom, there are these black writers who've been doing that for a very long time, right? And so there was a way that I was following that tradition without even knowing that tradition was there. But when I did learn that tradition was there, then I devoured that stuff. You know, I went back and I read everything from Du Bois, who is writing things onward, right, and to uh, see how various uh, people of African descent, black people, have, have, have looked at this, so yeah. Do you feel like there is a sense of community within this genre? You know, I do, and it's really interesting you say that within Afrofuturism or even larger within the black speculative world, there's a way that it kind of exists on its, it kind of exists in its own space, even with the advent of social media. Um, when, when I, when I, I had left writing for a while, I was making the fiction writing, I came back to it, but when I came back to it, it was within these online black spaces, right? It was full of black creatives, these uh, black men and women who were, you know, uh, thinking and creating and sharing and had ideas, and a lot of them were going to self-publish, and, you know, they were just, they were just all there. Some of them wanted to do movies, uh, some of them were doing screenplays, or they wanted to put on different performances, and it was just this huge community there and it was really interesting by the time I even learned about the larger market like the other speculative fiction community that we think of and we think of awards like nebulas and you know that was like another world the black space was its own contained world so there was this sense of community but that sense of community almost didn't it didn't even interact bridge or overlap <laughs> with the larger speculative world, which is still a problem, right? The larger speculative world is, seems at times completely apart from uh, the black speculative world. And so I definitely think there, yeah, there's been a sense of community in that sense because, for one, uh, if you're in the larger speculative world, well, there's there's still not a lot <laughs> of black. There's, there's there's not so many black speculative fiction writers in the larger world that we can all hold a conference, right? That wouldn't be like a room or two. And so, yeah, there's a sense that, you know, when you meet, you, I would go and look for, in the major magazines, I would very, you know, non-politically correctly, uh, look up people's names, say, I think that name might be black, let me see if I can find this person. I'd spend long times hunting who they were to figure out if that story sounded like it came from a black person, it addressed something. And so, you know, in the sense of that community, because you're always looking for someone. With. So, yeah, I'd say there's a sense of community, yeah. Um, so from your perspective, what does Afrofuturism offer society in this moment? Oh, in this moment. <laughs> Boy, do we live in a moment. I, you know, I think some people have pointed out that, especially people like Butler, um, who warned of, I guess used dystopia to warn futures, that people have pointed out that she was like 
she was warning of this moment, right? She predicted some of the things that we're facing now in many ways. Uh, and I, I think that's probably indicative of a lot of the black experience, like being the canary in the coal mine, uh, seeing the various things, whether it's, whether it's uh, thinking of environmental racism or uh, looking at um, inequality within uh, justice systems or looking at um, the looking at the lack of democracy in politics you can say that uh, people of accent people of African descent are live these experiences and warn and warn and warn and it's often not until it explodes and people are now threatened with the idea of uh, you know an autocratic type government or they're seeing uh, a further erosion of the environment and things that people pay attention to and I think that uh, a lot of early Afrofuturistic writers, you know, did this. They they kind of warned of these possibilities, and they talked about the issues of race and diversity and uh, and and various other social issues that needed to be addressed. And I think there's a way that Afrofuturism offers that. But I think Afrofuturism also, at the same time, offers us the possibility to think about how to resist that kind of uh, future. Um, how to form resistance uh, while you're living that type of experience, and as well how to imagine a future where that's not the case, how to imagine utopian future, right? Or if not fully utopian, at least a future where uh, those who resist win and those other forces are not triumphant. And I think uh, people who might despair uh, in this moment or what have you, I think that Afrofuturism offers that possibility, right? Whether it's through uh, music, writing, or what have you. I think it's somebody like Janelle Monae, for instance, who says, look, the future is going to have problems. It will have robots and androids who uh, face discrimination, but they also dance, <laughs> right? They, they find different ways to create and what have you and, and live lives. And I think uh, uh, you, you think about people, you know, various, I'm thinking about musicians like George Clinton and others who some people say have aspects after futurism. They say, hey, look, in the future, uh, black people will be there. However their future is going to be, they'll be there and they'll be creating and doing all these other things as well. So I think that's also something it has to offer, yeah. Can you share a little bit about the, some of your published work? Uh, sure. Um, so let's see. Uh, I'll, I guess I'll talk about the one that won awards. Uh, <laughs> uh, one of them is called, um, so I, I, I wrote a, a novella, it's called The Black God's Drums. And it is what I would consider that retro Afrofuturism, right? It imagines uh, this uh, late 19th century New Orleans where uh, the Civil War uh, never ended. There's simply an armistice, and so New Orleans is a free city, while the rest of the United States remains divided. Uh, slavery still exists in the Confederacy, uh, though it's been transferred from plantation fields to now a factory, and it brings in some of those dystopian elements that steampunk can bring in, such as the use of chemicals and what have you uh, to control populations. And at the same time, it also has this notion of uh, black triumphalism because the story um, rewrites uh, parts of the Haitian Revolution in this uh, retelling. Uh, the revolution is still successful, but it's, it's more successful beyond anyone's imagining, right? Haiti is a full empire. They have freed various other um, enslaved people, and uh, thanks to them, there are things like airships and all of these things uh, and, and various different inventions in the world. And so 
you know that work tries to tries to give that bridge of the uh, of, of both the dystopian aspect of futurism, this retrofuturism, but also something utopian and, and triumphant, and the two are often uh, I should say in conflict within the work. And it stars a the heroine of the of the story is a young protagonist by the name of uh, Jacqueline, who goes by the nickname Creeper. Uh, she lives in New Orleans and. Uh, she finds out that the Confederates are trying to use a secret weapon, or at least obtain a secret weapon, called the Black God's Drums. Uh, and she has to go meet a, an airship captain from the West Indies, uh, a, a black woman who's an airship captain. And she's trying to find the information to, the, to her and uh, get this information to her. And the two of them will then have to uh, set about an adventure to perhaps save the city from New Orleans from destruction. Oh, and also, the protagonist has an African goddess who lives in her head, because why not? So that's, that's one of them, yeah. And I think you've also read, written short stories? Yes. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to think of like any of my short stories are Afrofuturism. I do have one uh, that I, w- I would consider really an Afrofuturistic story. Um, it was written a long time ago, and it is called Wings for Icarus. And it's actually about a young boy who is trying to redeem his father's memory. His father was an an inventor who is named after Elijah McCoy, an actual black inventor. And I based it on, the story came because my father, uh, who is a welder, but also has his own inventing mind, uh, just a natural inventing mind, was uh, trimming uh, a palm tree in one of our, at our house, and he fell off out of it and broke his arm. He's fine. I mean, he's fine. He's, he's fine now. His arm is better. But I came up with this story where things did not turn out as well for this black inventor who tries to fly like Icarus with these wings made of uh, a modern type of uh, metal and polymer, and it does not work. And the story is basically about this uh, young boy who's trying to redeem his father's memory because people think he was crazy that he jumped off a cliff uh, trying to fly, and he's going to... He basically repairs the broken wings that his father had made, and he tries to fly as well. So it's 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 a bit about memory, it's about mobility, and it has that element of futurism uh, and the the black inventor in it as well. Yeah. How do you decide? Because um, so you've written novellas and short mm-hmm. stories. Is that typically the form that you like to go for? Or well, <laughs> actually, um, I started off as uh, as a fantasy novel writer. Anybody knows anything about fantasy novel writers? It means they're huge, huge, gigantic tomes. And uh, the, the, I, when I first started writing, it was to write these, I would call them short stories, but they were really novellas. <laughs> and then my other thing was really to write huge novels. Uh, I had to actually go back and train myself how to write actual short stories. And uh, some of my novellas end up, uh, like the Black God's Drums, it started off as a short story and it blossomed into a novella. And so, you know, it's really funny in the past few years, that's where a lot of my success has been in publishing short stories and novellas, but I'm really a novel writer at heart. And so um, I'm finding myself returning uh, back to that long form uh, again. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> Is there anything you're currently working on? Yeah, so I have uh, two things. I have um, a novella called Ring Shout, which is the best way to think of it is in, it's set in uh, 1922 Georgia. Actually, it's set mostly in Macon, Georgia. And the 
I don't want to give the full premise of the story, but it, it has to do with the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, birth of a nation, and such things. And the best way to describe it is a type of black Southern Gothic uh, horror story, but also fantasy, right? There's sword fighting, <laughs> but they're also monsters. Uh, and so that is a novella that's going to be out in November uh, from Tor. Um, and I am also working on a full-length novel, but well, it's actually done, it's just gone through editing, uh, set in the world of uh, another novella and I've written called um, A Dead Gen in Cairo. And it's also, this is also a retro-futuristic uh, uh, imagining, uh, A Dead Gen in Cairo, and I also wrote a second, a second novella, a short story first called A Dead Gen in Cairo, then a novella called The Haunting of Tramcar 015 or tram car 15 how people how people want to say it and both of those are set in a an alternate uh world an alternate cairo egypt um that is not colonized and where a sudanese inventor has uh created these various um machines that have brought jinn back into the world right and so it, it, it has a bit of, it has the airships and it has the technology, steampunk and diesel punk technology, but also has magical creatures and magic and sorcery. That's also part of it in this enchanted, uh, but also somewhat futuristic uh, 1912 Cairo. And so uh, I'm writing the first novel in that world. Uh, I can't give the title away yet, but it is coming. Starring uh, its main character, an agent by the name of Fatma. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Um, I guess switching over um, to discussion about um, Zora Neale Hurston. Mm -hmm. In your mind, what is the link between Zora Neale Hurston and Afrofuturism? Mm. Well, that's a good one. Um, it's funny, I was, I was introduced to Zora Neale Hurston in college um, from my. Uh, from my Dr. Holt at uh, at my uh, at my university introduced me to the Rise of Watching God, and I was introduced to the works of Zora Neale Hurston. I guess it was a way. It's interesting because Ring Shout, in some ways, the story I was just saying was influenced by someone like Zora Neale Hurston because um, the idea actually came from from uh, me reading parts of the WPA narratives. Uh, the Works Progress Association narratives, uh, these narratives of former of ex-slaves, and it's Zero Noah Hurston who was instrumental in beginning that by interviewing uh, ex-slaves uh, here in Florida, right? And so, I know she influences me definitively that way. Um, but you know, I, I think there's a way that, uh, that that her influence is there because if I think of her in the 1920s and I think of uh, her starting, you know, having the the black literati. Uh, that she group that she forms with others like Langston Hughes and others, um, and I think of you know them putting out their magazine uh, Fire. There, there's a way where that magazine in itself was trying to imagine a new type of blackness. It was trying to think of black people as modern people, right? It was really this focus on modernity and to imagine how black people exist in this in these modern spaces, particularly at the time in what we would come to call Harlem Renaissance, and so. I think that she's definitively instructive there, right? And so I think there's a way in which she, even in her anthropology work and looking at 
uh, and black culture and black cultures of the past. There was always this way in which, even though she was talking about the past, she brought that past into the present, right? And I think there's a way that Afrofuturism, as much as it looks forward, it also doesn't ignore that past. It's very Sankofa in some ways. And I think, I think uh, Zora Neale Hurston sits at that crossroads, yeah. Do you think the festival's engagement with Afrofuturism continues her legacy? Certainly, I think if the I think if the festival is engaging with Afrofuturism, yeah, I think that yeah, I mean, it's you always wonder like what would a writer uh, think who had you know is gone now? What would they make of Afrofuturism? You know, and I I think it's I think Afrofuturism's uh, embrace of so many possibilities and so many different avenues and daring at times to simply just be outside the box would be something that I would I could see someone like Zora Neale Hurston embracing, definitely, yeah. And what can contemporary Afrofuturists learn from Zora Neale Hurston and early generations of black thinkers? Um, you know, I think about people like Zora Neale Hurston, I think about people like Pauline Hopkins, who even earlier in 1903 is writing these writing books about finding lost futuristic, uh, lost ancient but futuristic, like retrofuturist uh, cities in Ethiopia and all this. And I think that um, there's a way in which, there's a way that uh, as, as writers of, of black speculative fiction, it's kind of like, like I said, when I grew up, I didn't know a lot of them existed. And now there's access to them in ways that didn't exist when I was younger. And I would say really knowing uh, what they were doing, because you'll, it, you, you'll be surprised how much what they were talking about informs the now and informs the future. And you could look at them as almost predictive, right? But also dealing with the issues of their time. And I think understanding, for instance, how many of those writers, you know, if you're someone like Pauline Hopkins in the early 1900s, you're writing against the basic racial terror of the Nadir that's going on and how uh, they would use writing, this, this writing as this almost type of weapon, right, to fight back against these things. And I think there's a, there's a great deal to learn there uh, if you're a speculative fiction writer in this age trying to find your place and understand where you as a writer fit in, especially if you want to say something profound, where, where, where you fit in. And I think uh, looking back at what they were doing and putting it in the context of the times they were doing it in, uh, I think that's, that can be really instructive. So for someone who is new to Afrofuturism, what would you recommend start? <laughs> uh, where would they start? I, I would say go listen to some Janelle Monet. <laughs> I'm serious. Like people sometimes don't, they think of it as just literary, but I would say like listen to Janelle Monet, especially her first album. And and I said, I don't just listen to it, like look at the art she creates for it. Look at the videos that she creates, right? And and think of it almost as a story. Um, go back and listen to some hip hop, especially early hip hop. Go back and listen to like you know Planet Rock and things like that, and see how they were imagining how hip hop, just by the use of its of the instruments it was using, right, and creating things like you know the various mixers and these things are creating and creating turntablism. Think about how they were trying to utilize these things, uh, these sounds and instruments of the future, and putting them into their music and how that in its own way was futurist. And so there's this way that Afrofuturism already exists in the things that are around us and we're not thinking about it because sometimes we're just thinking about it in a literary fashion. But it already exists in all of these cultural dynamics that uh, that we need to pay attention to. Like, like think of think of uh, think of George Clinton 
you know, somebody like Sun Ra, think of these kind of musicians, think of them in an Afrofuturistic context. Think about George Clinton's mothership and who he's saying is going to be in space, right? The pimps are going to be in space. Think of it in, in, that, in that wild uh, way that he's, he's talking about it, where he's using the profane to talk about the future, which most people had seen as this clean slate in the sense, and, you know, it's going to be sterile and pure. And he's like, no, it's going to be funky. <laughs> this is what the future is going to be. Um, and then, you know, literary-wise, uh, I suppose, I mean, like I said, many of those older writers, I would say to look at, um, uh, Caldwell Turnbull's uh, recent work, who's, I'm sorry, I can't, sorry, Caldwell, I can't think of your, think of the name of your book right now, but it's a great book. It's, it's set with the idea of, like, we always think of alien invasions, right? And we're thinking of alien invasions landing in, uh, where they always land. They always land in New York or they land in L.A., right? They don't land anywhere else in the world. He has them land uh, in the U.S. Virgin Islands, right? This is where they land. And the things, I mean, that's, that's, that's fascinating, right? So, and, um, um, of course, I would say, if, I guess if you really want to start, um, Cherie Renee Thomas was an editor of a book called Dark Matter, and it's an anthology. What's great about Dark Matter is that it includes many writers, like people you would think of as when we think of Afrofuturism, it includes essays on writers, you know, people like Octavia Butler, who are these, you know, foundational books in Afrofuturism, people like, um, like, like Samuel Blaney, right, who are also these other figures. And they have essays by them or stories written on them, but it as well includes older stories from W.B. Du Bois talking about you know, uh, comets wiping out humanity in the early 1900s to most modern stories by various uh, black writers. And so it, it pretty much runs the gamut when it comes to ideas of Afrofuturism. And I th it's just a good primer just to give you an idea of uh, where some of these stories come from. People like George Schuller and what have you, these older writers, uh, essays on the entire idea of Afrofuturism and black spectrum fiction as well as stories by more modern writers, modern for the time anyway. It's a, it's a good starting point. Do you feel like the audience for Afrofuturism is growing? Yeah, and you know, I think it was always there. <laughs> like I said, I, I don't, I don't, it's, it's like, when people say it's growing, I think it was just always there. I think it was, I think it's just, oh, here it is now, right? And it's getting more publicity now, right? But I, I don't think there was ever a time when there wasn't an audience for it. Especially if you're talking about a black audience. Like I said, I always use hip-hop as a perfect example. That's Hip-hop's been doing Afrofuturism from the jump. Anybody raised on hip-hop is probably already ready to uh, engage in Afrofuturism. And they likely already have, right? And so, yeah, definitely. It, it, I mean, if it's already there, then yes, it can only be growing. Um, do you have any final thoughts or what you want to say about Afrofuturism? Or? Uh, for anybody out there who's interested in it and who's interested in creating it, um, go for it. I, I don't know that it has any one definition. I don't know if it has any one medium. And so there are many different ways you can express it and many different ways you can define it. And so uh, please uh, get your creative self out there and you know let your flag fly. Thank you. No problem. Thanks for listening to the Every Tongue's Got to Confess podcast the official podcast of the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. Holly Baker and I produced this podcast with assistance from the University of Central Florida, the Association to Preserve Evil Community, and the Consortium for Critical Diversity and the Digital Age Research, or CEDAR, at Michigan State University. 
Be sure to find our podcast online on your favorite listening platforms and subscribe to never miss an episode.